Well, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help for uh, our time as we discuss uh, this uh, kind of next level of uh, theological triage. Lord, we come before you this morning and we're thankful for this opportunity that we can be gathered together. Uh, we pray that it would be helpful and a blessing to those uh, that are here this morning as we think and consider uh, this whole topic of theological triage. We pray that ultimately, really what we're talking about is being wise and discerning with uh, the truths of Scripture. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, seek to uh, uphold uh, the veracity of your Scriptures, uh, Lord, where uh, necessary and where important. Uh, but also that we would have uh, the grace and the gentleness and kindness towards others that may disagree. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, speak the truth in love, that that balance would be uh, a marker and a distinguishing feature of our lives. Uh, Lord, that we would be able to uh, strike that right balance. And, and uh, Lord, that you would help us do that even as we spend these moments in class, but also in uh, the rest of our lives, that this would be fruitful for kind of building a grid of thinking through uh, our theological understanding and how we can um, both fight for those uh, doctrines that are critical, uh, but also understanding that uh, there can be disagreement in areas uh, of lesser significance and Lord, that we can be gracious to those um, in those situations as well. So Lord, we pray for your help in that, uh, that you give us the wisdom and the discernment to be able to accomplish this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we introduced the concept of theological triage and kind of what we're talking about uh, with that uh, terminology. And we discussed the metaphor really illustrating how medical triage speaks to the importance of triage in situations of injury, but a parallel can be drawn to the concept of theological triage in the realm of religious discourse. In both scenarios, the essence of triage is in the prioritizing and addressing issues based on their level of significance. And so uh, last week, just kind of beginning to uh, paint the picture of, of what that is and how it can be helpful. In theological triage, there are core doctrines that are akin to the critically wounded, fundamental beliefs that are central to the Christian faith. And such doctrines would include such beliefs as the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the trinity, and the authority and inspiration of scripture, just to give you a few ideas of kind of what we're talking about within that category. And just as medics prioritize the evacuation of the gravely injured, theological triage emphasizes the utmost importance of preserving and understanding foundational tenets within orthodoxy. And so these are this first level that we're really going to get into today is the place where we want to say, yeah, we would fight for that and we would even die for that. We would go to the stake for that. These are that first level of doctrinal issues that uh, it is true. They, they do exist and uh, we must be willing to fight for them and to uh, do whatever it takes to uphold uh, the veracity of these doctrinal truths found in scripture. 
But there are also secondary theological issues that while uh, also important to us, they do not carry the same weight as these core doctrines. These can be analogous to the wounded with less severe injuries in need of timely, but not necessarily immediate attention. Doctrines such as the modes of baptism or specific eschatological views may fall into a category like this, where thoughtful discussion and diversity of opinion are permissible and I would even say encouraged. Like that, that should be a place where we're willing to sit down with those that uh, have maybe differing opinions and, and have some theological discourse on, on uh, what their views are. And that's sharpening for us, right? Uh, we don't ever want to be in a place where, nope, this is what I believe. Not going to talk to anybody else about it because this is right and you're wrong. Uh, that's just not a good disposition to have. And it's actually unfruitful for our own development and sharpness of understanding uh, the theology that we say believe, that we believe. And oftentimes where that comes from is actually a pretty shallow understanding of a doctrinal position is because you're so uh, ill-informed that you're not willing to hear someone else's position out because you're afraid that you might be proven wrong. Uh, and, and we need to be careful of that. That's, that's a spirit of potential pride uh, that we want to be careful that uh, we don't uh, foster and, and begin to allow to exist within uh, our lives. Uh, third is in, in both medical and theological triage, there are kind of those peripheral issues that while interesting and noteworthy, they would not be necessarily areas that we would separate or have any level of division amongst Christians. Uh, these might be compared to minor uh, injuries or ailments that can wait for more opportune moments for discussion and to address them. Such issues might be uh, even broader eschatological views, maybe Bible translations, I think I mentioned last week, or various interpretations of non-primary issue passages of scripture. And I think I gave you all the example of uh, when I was going through seminary and out at Grace Church in California, having a difference of opinion on uh, elders with children who believe. Uh, that was a, a good example, and I've got a number of others that, uh, that I would have differing issues and, and theological uh, discussions on that uh, I think they're good, helpful discussions to have, uh, that I can walk away in disagreement uh, graciously and kindly with those that uh, I may be discussing with. And finally, there are fourth rank matters of belief and practice that we would consider really just preferences and personal convictions. Uh, they're, they're definitely not issues that we should be uh, separating over. We can really have an understanding that, hey, that, that's that personal uh, conviction and preference for that individual, but uh, you know, that, that's it. Uh, and so we can talk about that in the sense of music style or entertainment choices, or even celebration of different holidays uh, that somebody may uh, choose to, uh, I don't want to celebrate that holiday because of, you know, pagan influences and those kinds of things. And you know what? We say, hey, that's fine. 
that's 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 your prerogative, and that's okay. And we we're not we should not be in a place where uh, where we start divisiveness uh, within the body of Christ over such issues. But it happens, and this is why we want to talk about it. Uh, not because it's an issue here necessarily at New Community, but it can be, uh, and it could be uh, an issue that uh, we can allow to get out of priority if we're not careful. So in essence, just as triage in the medical world ensures that critical resources are directed where they're needed most, theological triage helps Christians navigate that diverse landscape of beliefs and practices to distinguish between what is central to their faith and what allows for some variation and some diversity in understanding. Both concepts emphasize the efficient allocation of attention of resources to that area, promoting unity and understanding within the respective context. So that's really uh, the goal, the objective, is that we understand these things for what they really are. Don't make things that aren't a big deal a big deal, uh, but make the things that are a big deal a big deal, uh, because we need both. Uh, and, and to understand uh, the distinctiveness of, of those that are and those that are not. So spend some, uh, spending some more time online pursuing blogs and articles and social media and all these types of things that you can begin seeing out there, you're likely to stumble across writers who with confidence and conviction even label other Christians as heretics or false teachers. And sometimes the descriptions are apt, and they refer to people, for example, who deny the Trinity and thus fall clearly outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And that's important, and we should do that. We have even biblical insight uh, from the New Testament writers that called people out by name for false doctrine, and we should be willing to do that. But other times... The use of heresy sometimes begins to refer to an area where Bible-believing Orthodox Christians just disagree over doctrine or practice, and they're now labeled as a heretic. And such speaking, um, you know, is just not healthy and helpful for understanding these types of issues in a way that would be uh, helpful to uh, relationships or to the body of Christ in understanding these things. Uh, for example, uh, speaking in tongues or the ministry of women in the church. So uh, these types of issues can just be, you know, broad brushstroke and just be labeled as heresy when they are important issues, right? Don't get me wrong, right? Uh, but we have to understand their proper place within our theological grid work or else we begin to say, oh, somebody that practices something different than we do, understands something different than we do in an area such as the gifts and the miraculous gifts and the sign gifts, oh, now they're heretics. Well, that's not a proper perspective in how to understand these kinds of differences. And what happens online rarely stays online. And unnecessary division can easily spread to churches where Pastors and lay leaders find themselves in controversies over Christian leaders that may have associated with them or whose works they recommend at one time. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, man, there's this, there's this flaming issue going on that, that's totally unnecessary. And we must be cautious that we understand what is truly a first-rank issue in order to understand 
what hills we must die on and what hills we should allow space for gracious disagreement. And so that's really our objective today is to really deal with this first level of theological triage. So our objective is to look at uh, the first level here. And again, I want to remind you that while we discuss some examples of issues that belong in each category, we'll not be able to give you an exhaustive list of which ones fit in each list and, and be able to do that, nor will I be able to develop those particular theological positions. That's not the intent of this class. Any one of these things, we probably could spend a whole class developing that one doctrine, so I just can't do that in the time that we have. But my goal is to help you and give you a tool to begin to build out your theological grid with the criteria that will help you assess what level an issue belongs within and then how you should direct your engagement with others based upon your understanding of where that fits in the uh, understanding of um, this kind of theological triage. So first rank criteria, that, that's uh, I think number one on your, your list there, is really it's, it's these issues that are essential to the gospel itself and they require courage and conviction. Um, Augustine is all, often uh, said to have a, a popular quote, but there's a lot of disagreement on whether it was really first said by him or not. But uh, regardless of who said it first, uh, it's a helpful understanding. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That really is a helpful grid that we begin thinking about uh, where we want to be. And so really, as we're talking about this first level, we want to be in the category of unity, especially within the same body of Christ, uh, as much as we possibly can, but certainly on these critical first rank issues. So just as on the battlefield, we must acknowledge that some hills are worth dying on, and it's critical that we learn what those hills are. If the hills are worth dying on, are lost, everything is lost. We need to know which battles are worth dying for. And it's important for us to understand that in, it's very possible for us to get a secondary or tertiary doctrine wrong and still have a fruitful life and ministry. Right? I think last week I talked about one of my mentors that told me, getting ready to go to seminary, Jeremiah, remember, the best theologians are only right 80% of the time. Just understand that we have those blind spots. We have those areas in our understanding that if we knew what they were, we would correct them. But we just need to walk along life and walk within the body of Christ, understanding that it's possible that I'm wrong, Right? Uh, because it's possible that I have misunderstood something. And so we're going to talk about some criteria this morning that's helpful to kind of gut check us in that process to say, am I out on kind of island by myself in what I believe here? Or do I have the witness of scripture, the witness of the historic church, the witness of these things that will help us uh, as it relates to these particular theological positions. So it's important for us to understand that uh, where, these, where these pieces fit. Uh, theological triage or ranking doctrines according to significance 
uh, I would argue is not only a helpful thing to do, it's biblical. Paul explicitly identifies some doctrines of being of first importance. If you went to 1 Corinthians 15.3, right? All about the gospel. They're in 1 Corinthians 15. And he uses this whole idea of first importance. And so we can begin to understand that first level doctrines include the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the truths confessed in creeds that have been developed over church history, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are matters of Christian consensus, what has everywhere and always been believed by the church. And the gospel is at stake in these non-negotiable dogmas. And denying them places us in danger of losing a critical piece of what the gospel is if we are to allow it to be sacrificed. They separate Christians from non-Christians. They're worth indeed dying for. And I, I mention that because I believe we are quickly moving towards a place in the United States, in our world, where you are going to have to know what you are willing to die for, theologically. And if someone were to come in, you have to know, is this really worth dying for? Or can I kind of allow that peace to be of less significance, whatever it is that's being addressed. If some doctrines are of first importance, then it goes without saying that others are not, right? If there are essentials, then there must be non-essentials. Not everything belongs to one faith, as Paul says in Ephesians 4 or 5 which Christ handed down to the church through the apostles. If Peter could say of Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, 2 Peter 3.16, then it should be no surprise that godly men and women often disagree on how to interpret some passages. At least some non-essentials should be left to personal discretion and understanding and having the grace to be willing to allow someone that room. Even as we looked at last week in Romans 14, verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And Paul warns us not to quarrel over opinions, even there in Romans 14, 1. So I mentioned Gavin Ortland's book uh, last week, uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and he begins to provide two reasons that's important for us to identify first-rank doctrines. And number one, he says this, quote, Some first-rank doctrines are worth fighting for because they mark a fault line between the gospel and rival ideology, religion, or worldview. Secondly, some first-rank doctrines are worth fighting for because they constitute a material point of the gospel as with justification. So uh, stated another way, some first-rank doctrines are needed to defend the gospel while others are important to proclaim the gospel. Okay? Some are important to defend the gospel while others are important to proclaim the gospel. Without them, the gospel is either left vulnerable 
or incomplete. This is what's at stake in these types of issues. So it's important that we learn to identify these first level doctrines and have the conviction and courage to uphold them for the sake of the gospel, even if someone were to come in here and say, renounce what you believe, and you have to know, okay, at what point am I not going to renounce because I am absolutely convinced that this is what the word of God is, this is what the gospel is, and I will do no another. It's kind of a Martin Luther point, right, where he is standing at the Senate and saying, I cannot renounce because it would go against my conscience. You have to know what those areas are in order to understand them, not only for theological discourse, but in even more significant situations, what you might do if the Lord called you to be persecuted in those kinds of situations. So how do we begin ranking different doctrines, right? This is kind of getting to the, the, the punch here. And there is, I believe, a helpful list of criteria on the priority of any particular doctrine. I think you have four of them there. Uh, so don't, don't try to fill in those yet. I'm going to get to those uh, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you eight and then I'm going to condense it down into four that I think will be much more helpful for you to be able to walk away from this class and say, okay, I know what those four are. But first, let me get you a little longer list and then we'll, then we'll try to condense it. Uh, number one, biblical clarity. How clear are the scriptures on whatever the issue is at hand? We'll, we'll talk about each of these in turn, so don't think I'm just moving on too quickly. But number two, relevance to the character and nature of God. The relevance to the character and nature of God. Number three, relevance to the essence of the gospel itself. How relevant is this to the essence of the gospel? Number four, Biblical frequency and significance. How often does the scripture speak to this issue? And what weight does the scripture place upon that issue when it does speak to it? You'll see that, right? So Paul, I mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. He is speaking to the weight and the significance of, of what he's speaking about in 1 Corinthians 15 in a different way than what he does in other places in Scripture. Number five, effect on other doctrines. What effect does this doctrine have upon other doctrines? And we'll talk about that. Number six, consensus among Christians, past and present. Okay? That is not an issue where we would take that first to the bank, right? To say, oh, well, because John Calvin believed this, I believe it. Well, no, that's not the first place you go, but it is an affirming place to go. When you begin to look at church history as a whole and understand other people that have gone to the stake and have fought for their beliefs, what have they come to? Because it's very easy for us in our comfortable world to kind of deal with these things in almost a little bit of an abstract way and the comfort of a church where we really, at this point, don't have the threat of someone coming in and we can have these kinds of discussions. 
But there are people throughout church history that have not had that luxury. And they were, were indeed going to the stake. They were indeed threatened for what they believed, and they had a lot on the stake for what they believed. And so it is significant to say, okay, what have other people, when their lives were literally on the line, believed about this issue? It's instructive to us. Seven, effect on personal and church life. What is the effect of this doctrine on personal and church life? We'll talk about that more. Number eight, current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of Scripture. Current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of Scripture. So these are all criteria that we can begin to use to say how significant is this theological matter that we're discussing or that's on the table for discussion or just your personal study. Now, a couple of items to note here before we get into the meat of this criteria. First is to notice how many of these show within theological triage is not primary an intellectual exercise, but a practical one. Uh, we, theological wisdom does not consider doctrines in just this abstract, only to be concerned about technical correctness. Rather, theological triage considers doctrine in their real-life influences on actual people and situations and churches. That's why we want to talk about these things, not just to purely, you know, build a grid and, okay, I've got it. I know which one fits in these and which ones don't, you know, and I've got it now. No, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's a significance of how it actually plays out into life. For example, biblical rel uh, relevance of the character of God. If the I, I believe, like, all uh, counseling, uh, all matters of discipleship, all of this ultimately gets back to the character of God. We don't counsel and disciple out of circumstances. We counsel out of the nature and character of who God is. So totally relevant, right? Uh, the third one there, relevance to the essence of the gospel, right? So, you know, if, if we lose that, what, what's the significance of it? The effect on other doctrines, the effect on personal and church life. You know, these things are inherently very practical and not just these theological abstract kind of concepts to think about. Thus, intelligence and theological astuteness are not the only or even necessarily the most important factors for doing theological triage well. At least as important is a desire for godliness and for the health of the local church. That's the objective, right? Our personal godliness. So that's why I keep talking about the importance of speaking the truth in love and graciousness and kindness because that's where it really comes to the rubber meeting the road. It's in these kinds of conversations and how we deal with one another in these types of things. But secondly, we must also recognize these types of criteria in a cumulative and a somewhat general way. For example, it's possible for a doctrine to be a first-rank doctrine without necessarily meeting all eight criteria, okay? Um, for example, it's possible uh, for us to think about 
these criteria as it relates to the virgin birth of Christ that's only referenced in a very few biblical passages. That's that fourth criteria, right? And yet it qualifies as a first-ranked doctrine. And, and we'll talk about that. And on the other hand, some doctrines meet several criteria and yet fall short of being what we would consider first-ranked doctrines. For instance, some doctrines that have been affirmed widely by Christians throughout uh, time, the sixth criteria, right, of church history, did not constitute matters of orthodoxy. One example would be uh, burial versus cremation, right? That's been a matter that's been thought about and discussed for a long, long, long time uh, and lots of significance uh, that we could talk about, uh, but it's not a first rank issue. And so we just have to be uh, thoughtful about how uh, we think about these uh, criteria. So uh, Ortland, that I keep mentioning here, he kind of boils these criteria down into four. And that's what I want to give you. That's what's on your sheet, because I think this is really where it's going to be most helpful to you. Number one is how clear is the Bible on this doctrine, right? Very similar to what we already talked about. How clear is the Bible on this doctrine that we're addressing, whatever it is? Number two, what is this doctrine's importance, or I like the word significance, to the gospel? Very similar to one of the points that we already talked about as well. Number three, what is the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? And then number four, what is this doctrine's effect upon the church today? And I would extend that, not just the church, but obviously how it impacts our lives within the church, right? So while these questions are not at all, are not all that should be asked, they are a great start in getting you down the pathway to understanding the doctrinal significance and where to place it in the practice of what we're talking about here, theological triage. So let's begin to look at each of these four criteria a little bit more in detail. So biblical clarity. And before I provide my answer to the question on biblical clarity, I want to hear from you a little bit. Why do you think this should be on the list of criteria? I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on why you think biblical clarity should be on the list of criteria for first order doctrines. Yeah, Rini. God is the author of the Bible. Okay. So God's the author of the scriptures. Okay. Okay. Standard of truth. Okay. The standard of truth. Okay. What else? Is that the yes? Um, I totally forgot. Glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah, Matt. In, in some sense, uh, in kind of a reformed doctrine, there were um, prior to that um, man's traditions and, and ideas that had been creeping into the church. And so for, for doctrine to be, you know, have clarity, it goes back to the root, and we don't seep our thoughts in that are unbiblical. Okay. Yeah, to it. All right. Yeah. Uh, if God in his revelation of himself chose to make a particular point very clear, then therefore that, that demonstrates the significance okay. as God would see it. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? Uh, yeah. 
all the other issues? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Power in his word, uh, and what what do you have in mind there specifically? Okay, and and so how help me connect that to. Uh, a first rank issue and why that should be a criteria. If we're not using the Bible and the words of the Bible, yep. then we're watering down the power of the gospel. Okay. We're not using his words. Yep. We're not using the words that God revealed to man through the Spirit. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. And so I'm not going to, kind of like you said before, even the best theologians are only going to be right 80% of the mm-hmm. time. If it's an issue that's not as clear, and even Peter was confused on it, yep. then maybe it's not a hill I need to die on. Okay. Okay. I remembered what I said. Okay. It came back. It came back. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it usually does. Um, but anyways, um, if, it's, if it's only like brought up once in Scripture, like why would we... And if it's not even clear, when, like the the one time it is mentioned, why would we like hyperfixate on it if it's okay. if it goes off clearly? Okay. Okay. So yeah, and again, want to be uh, very important that we're we're clear on if it's in scripture, it's important, right? I, I know I mentioned that last week, and I'm probably maybe maybe a little hypersensitive myself to. Uh, that issue, but uh, yeah, if it's there, we need to seek to understand it to the best that the scriptures allow us to understand it, but then to be able to put that in where it rightfully belongs, right? Uh, And so what um, could be seen as a passage that seems a little obtuse and just, you know, not real clear um, it could be that it's a matter of our own understanding and you know our own study or lack thereof that hasn't connected some of these other pieces to say, oh, like it actually does speak to this more fully and be able to uh, bring all that together uh, in, in a way that would be uh, fruitful for where, where we are to understand it. But uh, certainly biblical clarity must be considered a critical criterion for the theological triage process because it acknowledges the idea that some doctrines or are more clearly and explicitly revealed in the Bible than others, right? So in the process of theological triage, the goal is to prioritize doctrines based on their significance and the centrality to the Christian faith. So doctrines that are more clearly supported by the scriptures are often deemed more crucial because they provide a solid foundation for other beliefs and practices. So that begins to help us understand why would biblical clarity be so important, but also it should be noted that of first importance and ultimately the authority of the biblical witness is the end of the story, right? 
these other pieces are helpful uh, to get us to understand them, but the biblical authority and sufficiency of Scripture stands on its own. And so our objective is just to seek to understand that, and many tools can be used in that process, right? So uh, commentaries, you know, church history, a lot of pieces can be going into that bucket to have a, a fully orbed understanding of that doctrine. But ultimately, our objective is just to simply know what do the scriptures teach? Uh, so all the other tools, and I think that was kind of hinted on, uh, there are at a couple of points. But even as the Westminster Confession of Faith states, quote, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of man and private spirits are to be examined and in while, uh, and in while sentences we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. So that's the Westminster Confession. It's to understand that it is the ultimate and supreme answer to our theological understanding of any issue. And so that has to not only be one of the criteria, I think it has to be at the top of the list of the criteria. Because everything else, I think, as you were saying, flows from uh, understanding of the biblical clarity of Scripture. And so scriptures themselves are the ultimate rule for all faith and practice. That is where we have to begin and where we have to end. And everything in the middle becomes just helpful support to understanding the scriptures. So number two, we can talk about the significance to the gospel. And again, let me just kind of open it up for a little bit of discussion of why do you think that a criterion for theological triage in that first rank issue should be the significance to the gospel itself. What are your thoughts? What? What's the basis of anyone's salvation? Okay, the basis of anyone's salvation. Uh, you were asking me to repeat it? Yeah. Yeah, so why should the significance of the gospel be a criteria for first rank issues? Kayla. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So ultimately, uh, let me let me shape that uh, in another way. That's that's the same theme. Is I would say even more importantly than them getting to heaven is them getting to know God, right? And I know that's the same thing you're saying. But uh, ultimately, my objective for anyone is not to get them to heaven. My objective is that they may know God, right? Uh, and which is what's that? Eternal life, exactly. Uh, so it's a, a little nuance of that for sure. But, uh, you know, and so that actually ratchets, ratchets up exactly what you're saying is, well, if this is going to prevent someone 
from knowing God and having a relationship with him, that's of utmost importance, right? So good. That's, that's great. What else? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and then also we have the study in Romans, but in those two books of the Bible, that's what I would say a lot of the focus on them is we need only the gospel and nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. The whole yeah. scripture is based around the idea of the gospel. Okay. Okay, so kind of back to point one, right, is, well, if the scriptures speak clearly on it, as it does, uh, then the theme of scripture is the knowledge of God, knowing him, having a relationship with him, which is, in essence, uh, the gospel. Um, so, yeah, very good. Uh, did I see another one somewhere? Yeah, Dan. Kind of just to summarize what everybody said, Paul said in Romans 1, for on our shame Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I feel like just because, like Hannah said, that's the whole point of the Bible. Yeah. So just about any doctrine can be connected to the gospel. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like, so I yes. Have a there, yes. But I wouldn't necessarily say someone who's been believing creation can't be a believer. Yeah. Or that, that I don't know. Do you yeah. Know what How would you? Yeah. Certainly not. Uh, <laughs> uh, certainly would not uh, go there with it. But what's interesting, uh, and I can't spend too much time on here right now, but uh, within that issue is there's actually little tentacles that come off uh, in several uh, in several ways. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, let, let me just take uh, the historical Adam, uh, for example. Uh, so, uh, and then there's the whole issue of what must be affirmed and what cannot be denied. So that's two separate issues, right? Uh, so does someone have to know uh, about uh, the intricacies of understanding uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as it relates to a historical Adam in order to be saved. No, they have to know that they're a sinner and where that sin came from is a helpful you know, discussion as it relates to that you're a sinner. Uh, but um, there's a whole theological issue that there's books written about that you know, Adam was not a real man. You know, that, that, you know, those first chapters of Genesis were just uh, a, a, a story. And so um, what happens there, though, is, which becomes problematic, is when you get to Romans 5 and you begin to see that Jesus is the new Adam, well, what is he fixing if this wasn't real? Uh, that becomes an issue that is tied centrally to the gospel, uh, that that has to be sorted out. And again, that would take a long time to be able to have that full discussion here. Uh, but this, I think, actually illustrates the very importance of what we're doing. 
is uh, being able to have that conversation in order to understand, well, at what point does this become a gospel issue? Um, and, and you have to uh, try to work that out in real time with whoever it is that you're spending that time with uh, in that discussion. Because if they're denying uh, you know, a literal atom, well, then that, that can become you know, a bit of a, a gospel issue when you get uh, to understand uh, the issues later. I'm, I'm seeing hands go up everywhere. I just, I just opened a can, or you did, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I just your earlier comment, would you call that a defending or a proclaiming sort of doctrine? Which one particularly? The, the, the Adam thing. Because uh, you go, it's not a... It, it, Somebody's going to walk into this once they believe. That's what I think. They're going to, they don't need to dwell on it. Yeah. The main focus is on Jesus himself and your sin. Yeah. And then once they see that, the person starts thinking about it. I think they walk back into that. So it's not something I would dwell on. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's a first rater, but I'm not going to dwell on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the nature of specifically what's being challenged in question and if it is a denial of that truth. So if it's a rejection of that truth, that's more concerning to me that they didn't have the knowledge of the truth. Um, because that's in the realm of uh, to be instructed and the spirit to convict and understand these truths that takes time and there's, there's time for that. Uh, but if it's just a wholesale rejection, no, I don't believe that. Uh, well then there's a bigger conversation probably there to be had and whether it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a couple. Yeah. I was just going to say without uh, a clear understanding of the gospel, the rest doesn't matter. Like yeah. there, you know, I mean like before I was a Christian, before, God came to me like all, all I knew was the gospel at first that's all that mattered and that's all that needed to matter really at that, at that time until I could dig deeper into the rest of it so like without the gospel without the Messiah without salvation the rest of it just literally doesn't matter right like uh, I would be very slow to say it doesn't matter uh, because that kind of gets to that importance kind of if he didn't come and didn't exist yeah. stuff, then yes. you see what I'm saying? Yes. Well, uh, so Paul says in, uh, back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if even if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, uh, we're to be pitied because all this is pointless. So I think that's yeah, kind of in, the, in the, that realm of uh, what you're thinking. I, I can go with that uh, for sure. Yeah. 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 So with, with biblical clarity... <laughs> Uh, I don't, we didn't use this word, but it seems like everything we're kind of talking about is just going back to hermeneutics. And would that then make hermeneutics a first rate issue, the process of biblical interpretation? And by that, you mean how you, your, your, your process of hermeneutics? Yeah. Let me it, think about it would that. Seem to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I I think that's outside of so that so I think my answer to that would be, but I'll think about it a little more. Uh, 
hermeneutics is a discipline outside of that's why it's a question theological right systematic understanding right. it's actually what informs i know so uh let me think about that a little more on how i'd precisely answer that yeah and authority and insufficiency and inspiration and infallibility yeah 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 uh so all that gets tied in together which then informs how you approach the scriptures yeah uh let me go here and then back here yeah okay so to answer your first question of biblical clarity if i don't understand it then it's like as simple as i just can't apply it okay um, and i have psalm 19 verse 7 that says the law of the lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple okay yeah good all right uh yeah right back here this is sarah right um, yeah yeah I think what might actually help people is if you go to the thief on the cross all he knew was who jesus On, yeah. I just have to. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. I was just going to add a knowledge leading to faith. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have a question just for clarity. So you can have an issue that is not clearly addressed biblically, so it would fail point one as far as being a first rank issue. Um, yet that second point, where if it distorts the gospel in any way, it is still a hill worth dying on. Even though it's not, it may not clearly be addressed biblically, if it distorts the gospel using the Galatians scripture of the value of preaching the gospel and only the gospel according to as Paul preached, and how the accursed language is used twice right back to back there, you, you know, it would be true then that we could have issues worth, die, worth dying on that aren't biblically addressed, but do distort the gospel, hence within the context of a theological discussion within church leaders and among the church, it is a first-rank issue. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of one that would fit that that is not clearly addressed in Scripture. Do you have anything in mind? No, I'm okay. just kind of looking at that from a triage perspective. Yeah, okay, so. coming from the doctor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of one where that would apply. Uh, maybe we can be thinking about that, you know, over the next few days here. Think, help me think of one that that might, um, where that might apply, and and then we could think through that one. Right now, I can't think of one that 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 would be the case, uh, but doesn't mean it's not out there. So uh, I'd have a hard time thinking about that. Uh, was there something else? One other one? Okay, let me just give. Uh, oh, there is. Yeah, Chris. Is it fair to say, do you use, would you use a first, like one of these first tier issues as like the dividing line between Christians and non Christians? Yes. Okay. 
Yes. We're talking in realms of orthodoxy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Yeah, I don't think so because I think that's where you get into the, uh, the history of the church. So it's not just you and I here making our list. It's that the whole of church history comes to bear on establishing what orthodoxy is. No, not over scripture. That's where. <laughs> where are you trying to start here, man? <laughs> no, uh, no. That's uh, again, obviously, why I started with the clarity of scripture, right? But I think uh, where that becomes a question is the history of the church and the witness of the church throughout the centuries to be able to say. No, this has been fought over and codified, and it's clear what orthodoxy is. And somebody may say, well, I just don't believe that. And that's their prerogative, right, uh, clearly. But that's the place where I would say, well, you're clearly outside of first rank issue. This, this helps me identify how I think about this issue with you. Um, and so... Uh, I am now thinking about that person as an unbeliever that needs to hear the clarity of the scripture in the gospel uh, that they may understand. Yeah. Um, hopefully that's helpful. Uh, let, me, um, uh, let me go to uh, three, the testimony of the historical church. Um, throughout the history of Christian theology, the doctrines of the gospel have been recognized as foundational and non-negotiable, okay? The creeds and confessions, such as the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creeds, often articulate these core beliefs in a systematic way to provide clarity on such matters. Because this is why we have a doctrinal statement as a church, uh, because uh, it's not trying to be uh, oh, that those creeds were not sufficient and good enough for us. It's no, we want to be able to give biblical clarity on where we stand as a church on different biblical issues. And so uh, we can see in the earliest centuries of the Christian movement, heretics directed their most dangerous attacks upon the church and the understanding of who Jesus is and in what sense he is the very son of God. Those were the battlegrounds in the early church. Other crucial debates concern the question of how the son is related to the father and the Holy Spirit, so the issue of Trinity, right? At historic turning points such as the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon, orthodoxy was 
vindicated and heresy was condemned. This is not like this is that theology is just fluid and in emotion throughout the centuries. No, we, it's, it's an issue with us and seeking to come to understand in real time what God's word has said and we can use the benefit of church history and those that have gone before us to help bring clarity to what is static truth. Uh, and so it's not that this is some aniba of, of theology. It's no, no, no. We're seeking to come to understand these truths once and for all delivered to the saints. Uh, that's our objective. And so it's wise and good for us to return to the historic church as only one level of criterion to investigate as we're looking at theological triage to determine where particular doctrines fit. They can help us in that. We're not starting with a blank sheet of paper, in other words. We're, we have the scriptures, right, as the supreme authority, right? Make sure that's clear. But then we also have the benefit of going back and seeing and understanding these hard-fought battles throughout church history and say, okay, I'm not the first guy that's wondered about this. I'm not the first one that's had a question about the Trinity and how all that works. Let me go back and use the benefit of church history to seek to understand how the scriptures teach me what the Trinity is, right? Uh, that, that's, the, that's the objective there. Uh, and then uh, fourth, and, and then we'll come back uh, next week to, to dig into some more of these other things. But uh, consider the impact to the church today. And while this is not a criterion to determine the rank of a theological issue per se, it is an important consideration within theological triage. And I would argue, as do others such as Gavin Ortland, that understanding the impact of theological beliefs on the church today is relevant for a number of issues. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things. And I would just give you a couple examples that happen in the history of New Community Church. And that is the statement on uh, life, right? The, uh, the value of life that we added to our theological statement later. It was not initially in there. But because, as I mentioned earlier, the, the cultural pressures of the day, we felt like we weren't bringing clarity to, to what the, the scriptures taught. We're just saying what the scriptures teach. Because we just, there wasn't necessarily, it was, it was an assumed before, right? Like uh, there was a time where it was just assumed that, you know, Christians believed in the value of life. Well, that's no longer a safe assumption necessarily. And then the second one was our statement on gender, sexuality, uh, and um, what's, what is it? Gender, sexuality, and uh, marriage, thank you. Uh, and so just a few years ago, we added that in because of the same issue in the culture, these pressures that were creating the need for us to state clearly what we believe the scriptures teach on an issue like that. And so uh, these, these issues can be uh, most helpful in bringing uh, clarity to them to understand uh, how we are to understand 
to navigate through the life's complexities uh, in, in conversations, but also as a church. Like, uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, because of the political environment, we wanted to be able to say that we as a church, historically speaking, throughout the, the uh, history of New Community Church, we have believed these issues so that it's more difficult, doesn't mean that it can't happen, but it's more difficult later to say, oh, that's hate speech, or you know, that, you, you're bigots. No, 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 this has been the long-standing belief of New Community Church. We can go back to the archives and the audio of what's been preached here from the very beginning, uh, and we can state that that statement that we made has always historically been true of New Community Church. Um, and that begins to give that level of clarity for uh, those types of issues, uh, both as kind of organizationally, but also personally in conversations uh, that we may have with folks. So uh, we'll come back, we're out of time, but uh, thanks for the good questions, the conversation.